Really? The Antichrist in 1500? The end of the world in the 1700s? Oh, sorry. Yeah, right. I've been up all night reading this. I thought this would be a quick read, right? We're the only ones that have ever experienced being in the last days. Uh, no, no, like, just really interesting, right? Remember the first time I saw this book, the cover of this book, I said, thank the Lord. Not because, hey, these Christians are simple, naive, sort of simplistic. No, no, no. This is really, this is really significant because unless the church lives every generation, unless it lives every generation with a sense of the anytime return of Jesus, it's really, well, not really the church, at least from what's described in here. So this is really uh, encouraging, actually. So, uh, so there you go. Last days are here again. Hey. We are, we are in week two, and we are looking at the last days, but we're using a term for it. You, you remember uh, from last week, uh, just starting with us uh, this morning? We're using the term eschaton, the Greek word for last, last things, last days, whatever, right? And so we're using the term eschatology. Uh, you know, you're, you're seeing that in your notes, right? Hey, by the way, um, some of you have already done this, uh, but, you know, printing these notes off and just scribbling on them, because you will notice that often I'm saying it a little differently than what's in the notes, because you can tell I don't pay a lot of attention to them. It's got to be some creative work going on here, right? Like, like in, in the, okay, right, so you get, you get the idea. So we're using the term eschatology here because it just, it's, it allows us to put in there some new ideas. When we typically think of Bible prophecy, many of us tend to think very narrowly about what is still future. Well, maybe, maybe accept the establishment of the state of Israel. Oh, Lord, may your, may your hand be on what's going on there. But, it, but when we think of Bible prophecy, we think of things that, you know, are still basically future and basically frightening, right? When we think of the Bible prophecy, we think, oh boy, it's gonna get, it's gonna get really bad. And that's, that's the way I, I grew up thinking about it too. And you think of what's going on in the world today. Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs actually have a better shot than usual of, of making, uh, making the Stanley Cup finals. Like, if that's not a sign of the end of the world, I mean, like, what else? Like, for me, growing up in Montreal, that's a frightening thought. And you think of how difficult it has been for the Maple Leafs not to have won the Stanley Cup since 1967. I mean, that is an amazing feat in and of itself. Anyways, okay. So we're, we're using the term eschatology because um, it's, it's broader and in some ways hopeful, but of course it, it includes Bible prophecy too. Hey, almost forgot, happy holidays. 
Yes, Pentecost Sunday long weekend. Seven weeks after Easter, Pentecost Sunday, boy, is a big deal. And listen, I know some people are a little suspicious about government. You hear it every once in a while. You know what they are doing to the church. But I've got to credit, uh, I've got to credit uh, the government of Ontario of declaring Pentecost Sunday a long weekend. Wow. Uh, this is Pentecostal Church, and we are part of a Pentecostal movement that is global. And one of the reasons I don't like this term is because when this is described, it often doesn't describe what God is doing that is positive, and the Pentecostal movement is a great example. This suggests not only challenge, but possibility, whereas this tends to be something that is uh, still ahead and still, uh, still a bit frightening. Yes, ça va? That's good? Hey, uh, thanks, thanks to uh, the production manager, um, Jared again this week, and, um, and Lauren for all the, the good work on the slides. Okay, tonight, making, right, some sense. Good. I want to cover six topics tonight. Six things, I didn't want to do seven. Seven suggests a certain amount of perfection. Don't want, to get, don't want to get carried away. So you ready to work? Six things. Number one, eschatology is, keep that one there, man. Eschatology is not something that is about a calendar, but about God's decision. So when we think of the last days, we, we think maybe of, you know, oh, look at this date. It must be the last days. But that's not the point when you think about the last days in terms of the biblical perspective. Uh, the eschaton doesn't arrive when the calendar flips, when the lunar cycles cycle. No. History, as we discussed last week, is personal, not driven by fate, not driven by time as such. It's driven by God. And that's one of the reasons why eschatology is filled with hope. Because it's driven by God. It's not as if, hey, here's this dark tunnel. We're all going down. There's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely, there is. So number one, number one, eschatology has to do with that period of time when God begins to fulfill his promises, okay? Point number one. Point number two Good. Eschatology, the study of eschatology, is the study of two primary time zones illustrated here. Uh, time zone number one is the time zone that goes from here to here. Uh, this is the time zone, obviously, we're in now. And please notice that I'm repeating what I said right at the beginning when I... Yeah, good. Uh, that, you know, we, we're, we figure we're probably in, like, like, we can't be here, right? Right. So it's not just what's ahead. This whole time zone is the time zone of eschatology. Because when Jesus comes, God is fulfilling his promise to send someone, a deliverer, to bring salvation. So for the Christian, the eschaton, the beginning of the end, begins with the life of Jesus. So we are in this time zone now. Uh, an easy way to remember this is, uh, 
I don't know if my Bible has it. Does it say New Testament? Yeah, there you go. New Testament in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. New means fulfillment. If the Old Testament means promise, new means fulfillment. These are the good, these are the good days, the new days of what God is, is doing. So we're, we're in this time zone then, and in this time zone, because we're here, it includes some things that have already happened. For us, there's a, there's a past element to this time zone, and there's a near future of this time zone. And of course, the other time zone is this one after Jesus returns, right? So this is where we're located. So when you, when you think of the eschaton, think in terms of these two time zones, and we're in the first of two, the beginning of the end. Okay, that's good. Now I know it's a holiday weekend, so uh, we're, we're moving this along. Okay, number There are eschatological pieces and there are eschatological puzzles, number three and four. By number three, eschatological pieces. What I mean here are there are pieces or events of the eschaton that um, are events and these events let us know that we are in the last days, right? So when I mean eschatological pieces in this illustration, I'm talking about events, moments when God begins to fulfill his promises, okay, good. Now, among these pieces, there are uh, primary ones and non-primary ones. Now, this is my definition. Um, I don't mean essential and non-essential as such. I'm not, I'm not trying to rank them or rate them, but I do think it's fair enough to say that there are some pieces, events, that are primary in that they are clearly presented in the word and widely accepted by the global church. Clearly presented in the word. I mean, no one reads through this and doesn't realize that Jesus is coming back. <laughs> no one reads through the Bible and says, I'm not sure if it's clear whether there's a judgment or not. These, these are primary pieces, clearly presented. You don't have to do a lot of digging in the word, you know, to figure out Jesus is coming back, clearly presented. And, and so clearly that even though the Christian family has different tribes, with certain different understandings, that's the richness of the people of God. Uh, you know, these, these primary events are, are uh, widely accepted, okay? So by non-primary, I mean, not unimportant, but not as clearly presented in the word. You gotta put two and two and sometimes one together uh, not quite as clearly presented and not as widely accepted for that reason, right? So one group puts, you know, two and two together. Another one puts two and two and one and, you know, you got five and instead of four. So that's what I mean. Okay, so let me demonstrate and uh, I'll show these on the screen. So here are what I think the, the five 
primary pieces that are clearly presented and have wide acceptance. Right, this is, this is what starts the eschaton, the beginning of the end. This is when the kingdom of God, hey, week four, week four we're gonna talk about this and what that has to do with, uh, with you and me. And next week, in case I forget to say it later, uh, next week we're gonna talk in particular about our experience of eschatology now. How it affects us, how it affects our moods, why sometimes it causes us to long. In other words, I think a healthy eschatology sometimes puts us on edge a bit. Okay, but that's, that's next week. Are you busy? Can you, can you come back next week? Okay, next week. Okay, that's number one, yes? Number two? Number two. Good, second coming, right. Good. Number three, third primary piece, right. You don't have to work hard to figure out there's a resurrection coming. Resurrection, and notice two terms now, right? The resurrection of the dead and the transfiguration of the living. This is important because none of us goes into the next life uh, in, in exactly this body itself. There, these bodies were made for this broken planet. These breaking down bodies are made for this breaking down planet. New bodies for a new heaven and a new earth. So resurrection and transfiguration, that's good. Primary piece. Primary piece number four. See it everywhere. Okay, folks, uh, week three, week four. Week four, we're gonna dive into this and I don't wanna go there. It's, it's a holiday weekend. It's Pentecost Sunday. Thank the Lord. What a great day this is. But... You see, often we think about this as something negative, but I want you to see that this is what people cry for when they say they want justice. And boy, uh, I don't have to get you folks to think too hard to imagine where you might say we need justice now. And if you yelled it out, I probably would amen it. I can think of some, oh, I can think of, So notice, uh, salvation, condemnation, um, justice. Those who have done what is not just will meet justice. Okay, sorry, that's week four. We'll come back to it. Okay, fifth primary piece, wide, wide acceptance. Right. How can you miss the finality of the book of Revelation, right? New heaven and new earth. Okay, good. Now, okay. No one get offended now, but I think these other ones are non-primary. Again, I'm not saying unimportant, but based on the criteria we have used, right? Track it with me. Uh, a little bit more controversy. Got to dig a little harder. Hey, I got to go here. Got to go here. Good. Okay. Non-primary piece, number one. Right. Now, I think most Christians agree there is a tribulation. The disagreement is, is it in particular this horrific seven-year period just before Christ returns, which is preceded by the rapture, right? The church gets taken out, and then it all goes to hell in a handbasket pretty fast. Or, as other Christians believe, 
that tribulation is something that is a recurring condition. Yeah, I just threw my book down um, in church history. Second non-primary piece is the millennium, uh, a 1,000-year period of glory, uh, God's glory on the earth, uh, the golden age. Is that actually a 1,000-year period or, and we'll discuss this right at the very end today, or is that just a way of saying, hey, now that the church is doing what, now that the church is rising up and being the church, in a sense, we're already in the millennium. Well, okay. Okay, third non-primary piece. Now, some of you have said, Dr. Vent, uh, this is a primary piece to me. Well, we've heard a lot about it, but is there one Antichrist, the capital A Antichrist that's coming at the end? That book is filled with people who were called the Antichrist. <laughs> okay. Or look at this. I didn't put it on the screen. It's in your notes. Uh, let me find mine. Did I put him in here? No, I didn't. Uh, yeah, right, right, right. I think it's uh, I think it's First John. I think it's First John, two seven. You see, you're looking at your notes, but I've already changed mine. Creative process, right? Isn't that great? The creative process at work. Isn't this exciting to watch me turning pages in my Bible? Okay, uh, I am okay. Oh Lord, may it be First John. Uh, to, yeah, it is for sure, for sure. Yeah, but it's not seven, uh, it's uh, 18. Oh boy, okay. First John 2.18, got it? If you just wrote down the other one, scratch it out. First John 2.18, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Okay, uh, fourth non-primary. Again, not that this is unimportant, but there's a range of how it's been understood. Okay, good. And Antichrist is not mentioned by name in the book of Revelation, by the way. You got other names there, right? Dragon, beast number one, beast number two, beast from the sea, beast from the land. Fourth and last one. Okay, again, not unimportant. Does national Israel play a role? Does, does the nation of Israel play a role in God's final timetable? If you've grown up with Bible prophecy, you're saying, yes. Or, as some other Christians think, is it not so much what God will do with national Israel as much as is there a mass conversion of Jews that is not national as much as a revival among Jews scattered across the globe? Okay, all significant, but uh, are you willing to work with me here on primary and, and non-primary? Okay, very good. Eschatological pieces, number four, the eschatological puzzle. 
Folks, what is the puzzle? The puzzle is that these five pieces we just used and the four pieces that we identified as non-primary, you can fit them together to create different pictures. That's the puzzle. I, I don't know if any of you are puzzlers or any of you working on a puzzle for the, the Pentecost long weekend. You working on one? Uh, if, if you go into your uh, puzzle store, like, like a puzzle emporium, where you, know, you have categories of puzzles, uh, you know, cats, dogs, CD, you get to E, the eschatology puzzles. You ever seen those? Uh, just, just a little tip. If you see a box with an eschatology puzzle and you see a picture on the front, I would toss it. The best eschatology puzzles have no picture. Pieces, no picture. So the puzzle. So you, you, buy, you buy an eschatology puzzle. I, I, don't, I don't know what they run for these days. But you buy it, no picture on the cover. Good. You get home, you open the box, and there are your pieces we just described. Now, the puzzle is, of course, <laughs> how do you put it together? And without a picture, <laughs> how do you put it together? Some, of course, and I, I probably, most, probably most rookie puzzlers will do the easy thing, and they'll start with framing it. You know, you find your edge pieces. I mean, there's four of these little ones, right? Okay, that, that's pretty easy. Uh, and then, you, then you, you find the frame and you, you form it out. Uh, okay, good. And then, then you fill in the middle. That might not, okay. If you want to do that with eschatology pieces where you're, where you're using the non-primary pieces, the, the rim pieces, starting with that, okay. Probably what I would do is I'd start with the primary pieces and form the middle and then work on I'm just trying to picture for you why uh, different groups of Christians think differently. We, we sort of agree on the pieces, but you know, the puzzle is how exactly do you fit it together? So number five is this. Well, why is this a puzzle? Lord, speak to us in your word. Why is it a puzzle? <laughs> And why do some people think they got it all figured out? And people like me, I uh, really can't say it that way. I just describe primary and non-primary. Why is that? Well, let's start with the obvious one, shall we? God doesn't want us to know how to put it all together. Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, Jesus is about to leave them. He's making a post-resurrection appearance to his disciples. And he's about to leave. Think about that now. <laughs> they finally found the Messiah and he's telling them he's going. <laughs> well, you just got here. like So they ask him the obvious question. I would have told, Lord, um, is it now? Is this, is this the, is this the kingdom? Um, is it, is it, is it this moment? Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the moment, Lord, that we've been waiting for? Verse 6. He said to them, 
it is not for you to know the time or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Well, that's pretty clear. It's amazing that we think we can figure it out nevertheless. Why is this a puzzle? Well, God doesn't want us to know everything. And there's another reason. The two books we most often go to to try to understand what is happening in our world now and what's going to happen, the two books are Daniel and Revelation. And, come on, Let's be honest, those are not the simplest books to read. In fact, may I suggest to you that they intentionally reveal but conceal. Uh, when, when I did my doctoral work at the University of Toronto, my work was on Jewish apocalyptic literature, literature like the book of Revelation. By the time that John writes his vision, uh, there's been 300 years of, of Jewish writings predicting a Messiah, what the world would be like when he came, using symbols and visions and otherworldly journeys. 300 years of it. And Revelation is the first time a Christian piece of apocalyptic literature appeared. So this has been helpful to me because the nature of this type of literature is that it is used when you want to give a strong impression of what the future is like without too many details. Look, the message of Revelation is clear. Ah, uh, there's something world-shaking at stake. Um, God is challenging people to get right with him, right? There's both assurance and challenge. Absolutely. But it's in symbols and code names. Why? Perhaps because God doesn't want you to figure out how to hack the code. <laughs> He's put it in code so that you won't. Think about it. If you could figure out who the Antichrist was, and what that tribulation referred to, how in the world, I'll be right back, not, not going far, how in, how in the world could the church through every century thought Revelation was speaking to them? Revelation isn't just to us. And because specific names and dates are not mentioned, the book of Revelation has power in every generation till he returns. getting a brain cramp. This is a lot for a whole... I'll be right back. <sighs> okay, that's better. Hey, if you have any questions, uh, I know you're dealing with in small groups, and if you have any questions, please send an email to Pastor Gary or Pastor Al, uh, both seminary students, and they will be happy to answer all of your questions. Hey, you know... Uh, I wish there was some way for me to answer more of them. Uh, just, yeah, I, I know I'm raising a lot of questions for you. Anyways, let me see if I can finish by trying to bring 
some pictures together. So I, I've pushed this puzzle analogy on you, the idea of pieces and puzzles. Let me show you, let me describe to you four pictures of what the end might look like, four different ones. Three of them I have illustrations for, okay? On the board right now is probably the oldest one. I would track this back to the New Testament period. This is, this is the dominant view in the early church. Here is a simple picture, and by a picture I mean you line up the events, you figure out when things really start to get good, right? Okay. This, this is called, this is called, you see it in your notes, the premillennial view, and the pre refers to Jesus. He comes before things start getting really good. He comes before the, okay, premillennial view. He comes before this thousand years of, of God's glory on earth, premillennial view. This, look, this is the early church, and this is, this is traditionally a Pentecostal view. Our longing for a better world starts with the appearance of Jesus. Our hope is for his return, and then he makes things better, and off we go. Okay, good. Picture number two is really quite different. Picture number two is often called post-millennialism and as pre referred to the timing of Jesus's return, so does post. Now folks, look at this one. This one suggests that the millennium starts, you got it, before he comes back, in other his return, in other words, his return is post-millennial. This one starts taking, this one really doesn't get traction till about the 1500s. Uh, and this one, and I think you'll, you'll understand, this one tends to be more popular when things are going better on the earth. So this idea was really popular in the 1700s. They, they called it the Great Awakening in uh, the Northeast of what we refer to as the United States, right? The colonies. Um, in the 1700s, uh, the Great Awakening, revival. And some of those revivalists got thinking, well, this revival starting here is going to spread, and God is Christianizing the world, and the church will participate in bringing in the kingdom. Wow. Now, the previous one said, Jesus is the one who will trigger this. This one says, no, the church needs to rise up. Okay, that's a lot of responsibility to think about on a holiday weekend, right? Oh, okay, the church needs to bring in the kingdom. Okay, the third one I have no diagram for. Uh, it's called the amillennial view. And this one really doesn't get started until the 300s and picks up steam from there. And the reason why 300 is a, is a date you've heard twice now is that something happens with the church in 300. Uh, the church moves from being an unrecognized, frequently persecuted group to becoming the official state religion of the Roman Empire, <laughs> okay? There's a world changer for you. And, uh, you know, church fathers like uh, Augustine would say, um, wow, 
maybe, maybe, maybe this is the beginning of the millennium. I have no diagram for it, but here's how I remember it. The ah millennium says, ah, the millennium. Okay, not exactly a thousand years, but it's, it's more just the age of the church. Uh, some of your Presbyterian friends will probably lean in on that one, right? Ah, uh, millennial. Now you're saying, okay, Dr. Van, this final one, this is the one I know. It's premillennialism with a twist. It's like diagram one, but it's a little bit more complicated. Look at this one. Now you've seen this one before. Now you're thinking, okay, good. <laughs> Finally. Premillennialism with a twist. This becomes, this comes together as a system in the 1830s. The, the recent date doesn't mean it's, you know, true or false as such. Look, Pentecostalism doesn't emerge from the early 1900s. Pentecost Sunday is something that's been, you know, uh, celebrated fervently uh, amongst Pentecostals only in the last, uh, you know, 120 years or so. So, but this really doesn't come together as a picture until the 1830s, but it becomes widely popular, particularly in Europe and then in North America. Huge. And this position, of course, which features a rapture and tribulation uh, is still current. Uh, think, think of some of the, uh, the proponents of this, John Hagee, uh, David Jeremiah, back in the day, Hal Lindsey, right? The late great planet Earth, right? Okay, this one says that Jesus returns in two stages. Uh, he returns here, and, but he doesn't come all the way to earth. He, he meets the saints in the air, and then he goes back to heaven with them, and then only comes to earth. See the way the diagrams are pointed. Only comes back to the earth seven years later after seven years of hell on earth. This is a system many of you know. Uh, now, this is certainly the view of many Pentecostals, not all, and is certainly the view of many Christians, but certainly not all. It's premillennialism with this twist. Hey, just by the way, I know it's a holiday weekend, I'm almost done, but this is based on the view that God will begin to fulfill his promises to the Jews only once the church is taken away. This system, you may or may not know, bases a lot of this on the fact that God will deal with the church separately from the Jews. So the church has to be taken out before Jesus can finish this. Say, Dr. Van, I've heard this all my life. First Thessalonians 4, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will ever be with the Lord. Yes, absolutely. I believe in this. I just don't know where we go after this happens. And here's the difference. You say, well, obviously we go up to heaven, but First Thessalonians, look, it's right in the last verse, the last two verses of chapter 4, First Thessalonians, take a look at it. It doesn't say where we go after we meet him. And there are, are many Christians around the world that say, we go to meet him so he comes, so that when he comes to earth, 
on that same trip down, we will go with him in triumph. This is probably a lot of what the first Christians thought. Look, when the king came to your town or your village, you didn't say, hey, I'm going to stay in my house. I hope he comes by my house so I can see him. When a king was coming to your village, you poured out to see him, to be in his, in his train, in his entourage, so that as you came in the city, you would be singing and dancing and celebrating. Many Christians think that's why we meet him in the air, so that as he is coming to earth, he only does this one time, we meet him so we can accompany him to earth. Some of you have never heard that, I know, but because this rapture text from 1 Thessalonians 4 doesn't say we go up to heaven, it could also mean we go up to meet him so we immediately come to earth, which means this is just, this is just another way of saying this. Either way, our hope is for the return of Jesus. Okay, happy holidays. One thought, okay. Um, the two most interesting pictures are the premillennial and the postmillennial to me because they represent two different moods. Moods. The premillennial position, we can, we can work with this one. The premillennial position says, I'm not... I'm pessimistic about the future of the world until Jesus returns. I'm pessimistic about world progress. I don't think we're going to get very far. Hey, you know, that's probably more where I'm at. The, uh, the post-millennial view is optimistic about world history because the post-millennial view thinks that the world will get better and then Jesus comes back when it's gotten really good. So when you think of world history, are you a pessimist or an optimist? You may be talking about that this afternoon. I am, I am an optimistic pessimist when it comes to, look, whatever you, wherever you're going on this, this part of the screen. Um, I am optimistic because Jesus is coming, but I'm pessimistic that we can change the world. I think we need him. I think humility suggests that we might be getting a little full of ourselves Look, um, but, and uh, I want you to hear, hear me say this, and we'll discuss it more again in another session. That doesn't mean that I think we should just treat the world as our garbage dump and say, hey, we're not gonna try and bring any change. We're out of here. I got a book on the floor now filled with people who thought they were out of here, and here we are still. I think because we're optimistic about the second coming, we make change wherever we can. I think because Jesus is coming, we show the world what the future looks like. So we get involved in community things. We, we do something positive to be the change through Christ's power where we can be. But that doesn't mean that we get so full of ourselves to think that we can do this by ourselves. So I am an optimistic pessimist. I think this is the solution to the world, but until he comes, what can I do to, like a pop-up in a mall, what can I do to show what the future might look like? What can you do to show what the future looks like wherever you live? Hey, great to be with you. Hey, bless your friends. Let's pray, shall we?
We believe in your coming, Lord, because you've come once, we believe you will come again. We believe, Lord, that you are a just God. You've told us that. Lord, you've told us that there is a future beyond this world, that we live more than once. Father, may these truths be reignited in our hearts and may the points that we are confused about not cause us to not think about eschatology at all. May we never use that excuse that we've lost our desire to see you because we aren't sure of all the events and all their timing. Lord, may we live in hope because we believe in you. Bless, bless my friends and their, their families, Lord. May you find us faithful this week.